Good morning, a selection of readings from 1 Samuel. Chapter 1. There was a certain man of Arimathaeum Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerome, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other, Panenna. And Panenna had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where, there were two, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Panenna, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunken in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And from chapter 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of the faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The word of the Lord. All right. So we are kicking off the fall with a brand new sermon series looking at the life of David called After God's Own Heart. Because that's how later in 1 Samuel God describes David, who we will come to see is a a very colorful 
a character, a very human character to say the least. And so we're going to see what exactly it might mean for someone like David to carry this appellation, a man after God's own heart. And David, he is one of the most central figures in all of Scripture. Besides Jesus, David is the person who gets the most ink. He gets the most pages. He gets the most narrative, biography, detail that we see in all of Scripture. He's really, really important. And so if we want to know more about Jesus, we've got to learn about David. There's this great hymn um, that I love that's, that's covered by this band that is really, really good called The Welcome Wagon. If you're on Spotify or Apple Music, look up The Welcome Wagon, and, and you will not be disappointed in their, in their catalog. But they, they sing this song called Hail to the Lord's Anointed, and, and it starts with these words, Hail to the Lord's Anointed, Great David's Greater Son. So if we want to know, you know what's so great about Jesus, it, it, it helps to know what's so great about David. And so to do that, we were, we're going to turn to 1 Samuel and the first two chapters, which is the beginning of a book that's about David. So even though David is not actually going to show up on the scene for like 16 chapters, it's a book about David. And David's story, it starts, of course, before he's born, because that's how all of our stories start. We're only here because a million different things happened that we had nothing to do with that caused us to be born. And David was, was born in the midst of great turmoil in the history of God's people. So here's kind of what's going on in the background. This is the world into which David was born. So first, there is chaos in Israel, internal chaos. The 12 tribes, they inhabit the promised land, but they're emerging from this period of their history known as the, the time of the judges, which is captured in the biblical book named um, Judges. So, uh, and so Judges is this period of just basically anarchy. Um, the 12 tribes are not united. They're a loose confederation. And if you read through the book of Judges, you'll be struck by how much violence there is, how bad people are behaving. Judges is God's people behaving badly, and it's this depressing spiral of violence and immorality. And so if you were reading the Old Testament in, 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 in a Jewish Bible or a Hebrew Bible, uh, the book of Judges comes right before 1 Samuel, actually. And the story right before this story about David starts is this story of 11 of the tribes align, aligning themselves against the one tribe of Benjamin because of this horrific crime that's happened, and they nearly wipe out. So 11 tribes nearly wipe out one tribe. And that's, that's kind of how things are going And Judges, it ends with these ominous words. So if you're reading, again, you're reading the Jewish Old Testament, you, you're getting right before Samuel, you're going to read these words right at the end of Judges. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So the stage is set. There's no king. There's no unity. There is rampant uh, immorality. Things are an absolute mess. Murder, rape, civil war, you name it. The times are dark. In addition, there's a religious crisis as well. The Israelites, you know, they had, had, had exited the promised land, gone up on Mount Sinai, received the law, and so they're supposed to have this exclusive relationship of worship of the Lord, but the, but the priesthood and the worship had, had degenerated and become hopelessly corrupt. The priests were good for nothing hucksters. They were addicted to money and sex. 
Their worship was syncretistic, mixing the worship of God with the deities of their neighbors. So we have an internal crisis. We have a religious crisis. And in the midst of all that, to to make matters even worse, there was an international crisis facing God's people as well. This new people was emerging called the Philistines. They were right on the Mediterranean coast. And these are the people from where, you know, Goliath, the great giant, comes from. And so they were tormenting God's people. So that's the world of 1 Samuel 1 and 2, a world where Israel is racked by internal chaos, by religious degradation and threats from foreign enemies. And so things could not look worse. For this people, right, God had said, I am going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. And at this point in the story, we're going, really? Them? Get out of here. So David's story, it starts with the story of Elkanah and his two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. One has lots of children, one has none. And of course, David's story starts with the barren one, Hannah. And Hannah's name means grace. It means grace. But Hannah's life had not been a graced life. It was a life that had been made bitter by disappointment and near endless Torment. But we're going to look at four aspects of Hannah's story this morning that we see in our passage. We're going to see Hannah's tears, Hannah's turn, Hannah's prayer, and what we can learn. So Hannah's tears, Hannah's turn, Hannah's prayer, what we can learn. First, her tears. Okay, so, so quick recap. Elkanah had two wives, Peninnah and Hannah. Peninnah has lots of kids. Hannah has none. And every year the family does this, this annual pilgrimage to Shiloh to worship God. And, and, and this year, Hannah won't eat and she won't stop weeping. And we go, why is Hannah crying? Here's why she is crying. Because her rival Peninnah taunts her because she doesn't have any children. In verse 6, it says that Peninnah would provoke her grievously to irritate her. But that word irritate is so weak. The Hebrew word that gets used for irritate is the same one that's translated in other places as thunder, like the Lord thunders from heaven. And so Peninnah makes it her job to torment, to provoke storms of rage and anxiety and pain and sorrow inside of Hannah. And she does this year after year after year until finally Hannah reaches her breaking point. She just can't take it anymore. Hannah is crying because she has no children, and in her culture, the message was, you don't have children, you're a woman, you're worthless. Because everything in the ancient world depended upon the fertility of children. Children were your social safety net, right? They're going to take care of you when you get old, and you can't work anymore, and you're no longer a, you know, quote-unquote productive member of society. Well, your kids are going to provide for you. That's their expectation. That's their job. You don't have social security. You don't have nursing homes. All you've got is kids. And if you don't have kids and you get old and you can't work anymore, all you can do is beg. And moreover, kids are a a human resource. They provide more workers for the family farm. Sons provided soldiers to protect the community. And so when you have a, a tribal society like Israel, you don't have a bunch of fortified cities that are easy to defend. So it's really, really helpful if someone's going to attack you. You have all these fighting age men and boys that you can muster and rally to defend your community. It's crucial. So kids provide for economic and physical security. Demographics are destiny. 
especially in a world where life for so many was nasty, brutish, and short. Now, I agree with Whitney Houston. Children are the future, right? There's no, there's no arguing with that. And at that time, to be a family without children, it meant that you had no future, That's why in scripture, when we see barrenness, we see that the situation is akin to hopelessness. And Peninnah, she represents the voice of the culture. The voice that says to a childless woman like Hannah, you're nothing. You're worthless. You're hopeless. And so you take what was, you know, presumably Hannah's natural desire to have children, and you compound that with this massive cultural value placed on women having children, and it's easy to understand why she weeps. So easy to understand. It's easy to understand the storms that were raging inside of her because of Peninnah's taunts. And you know, it, before we sneer at the backward cultural mores of ancient Israelite society, we need to be critical of our own cultural definitions of, of, of hope and of value, right? So, you know, in collectively oriented cultures like we see in the Bible, the family is on a pedestal. The family is the idol that everyone worships and serves. But in our individually oriented culture, you know, the voice is that personal achievement is everything. That's what matters. So you got to be the best and the brightest, the best looking, go to the best school, have the best jobs, marry the best spouse, live in the best house, go on the best vacations, have the best kids who are into the best activities. Everything around us, every person in our lives, every relationship, every possession is supposed to reflect back on us. How awesome we are. How valuable we are. But what happens when your life is a mess, a hot mess? Or you're just not that great. You're just sort of a regular schlub who's trying to make it, right? Every culture has its penitence telling its Hannahs, you're worthless. You're hopeless. You don't matter. All right, so those are Hannah's tears. But what about Hannah's turn? Because she doesn't say where she was. She doesn't say crying and not eating. What stops her tears and drives her to the tabernacle to pray? Right, so verse 7, she's being provoked. She's weeping. She won't eat. And then verse 8, uh, Elkanah, her husband, comes to her and says, you know, baby, you might not have any children, but, but you got me, right? You got me. And ain't my love enough, you know? Ain't I more to you than ten sons? Whereas Peninnah was saying, you know, you're worthless because you don't have kids. Elkanah is telling her, you're, you're someone, you're something, because you've got me. So after these words, it says that they ate and drank in Shiloh, and then Hannah rose. She stood up. Hannah stood up. And that's not just a little extraneous narrative detail. In the Bible, whenever we read about someone standing up, arising, it means that they have decided to take decisive action, right? They're going to do something about what is going on. And so what turned Hannah from, you know, this weeping mess to a woman on a mission? What turned her? And I'm going to say that it was not Elkanah's little speech. She doesn't say, no, she doesn't say anything to him. She doesn't respond to him, nor does she respond to Peninnah. So she doesn't respond to her tormentor or to her would-be comforter. And if she doesn't answer, that means she's not going to listen to their voices. Those are not going to be the voices of the people that she's going to listen to. 
right? One is the cultural voice saying, okay, you only matter, when you're a woman, you only matter if you have kids. And the other is this psychological voice. It's even maybe more insidious that says you matter because someone else says you do, right? One voice tells you you need cultural validation. The other, that your value rests on some kind of external affirmation. And these voices didn't just speak into Hannah's life. No, 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 no. These voices echo out across the ages, right? They just take different forms. We've already touched on the dominant, you know, cultural voice. But the psychological voice, whatever you want to call it, it's, we still hear it today, that, that we seek to build our sense of self-worth on external validation from people. And we all know people who are so scared to be alone that they settle, right? They might start dating someone because that sends them the message, I'm valuable, I matter, someone loves me, I'm important. And they end up compromising themselves because more than anything, they just want someone to tell them that they're valuable. But Hannah does not listen to those voices. She doesn't go to them to get their value. Where does she go? She goes to the entrance of the temple. She goes to God. Because that's where grace goes. Grace tells us to go to God when we're hurting instead of seeking after false comfort or false affirmation. And she goes and she prays this prayer. And at first blush, it might seem like she's bargaining with God. And if you've got to bargain with God, bargain with God. Like, do it. Go to him. But, but, and it seems like she's saying, hey God, if you give me this child, then I'm going to do this thing for you. But if we look more closely, that's really not what's happening. Look at what she promises, what she vows. She says, if you give me a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. Right? So her vow is that if God gives her a son, she's just going to turn right back around and give him to God anyway. Right? She isn't bargaining to get a child. She's actually offering to give a child that she doesn't have away. And what is she getting out of the deal? Is that going to make her fit in? You know, no, no, she's not going to be with this kid at the marketplace with the other moms in the village and their kids. She's not going to get that. She's not going to get emotional attachment because she's going to have to give them away. She's not going to get the, the, the social security that comes with having kids. No, no. Hannah is vowing to give rather, bargain, rather than bargaining to get. And her prayer reveals that she has rejected every other source of identity and value and hope besides God. She's left, you know, the realm of religion and she's found grace. Right? Religion that says, I want God for what God can give me. And grace that says, I want God for God's sake. Religion that says, I I want God to give me a child for myself. So yeah, yeah, if I can get that, I'll do X, Y, and Z. But grace says, God, I want a child for you. And plenty of people want or have wanted something as bad, as badly as Hannah wanted a child. Plenty of couples want children and cannot have them. Plenty of people want a relationship and they just can't seem to meet the right person. Plenty of people want closer friendships. They want a a better career, a more meaningful life, closer family. They want those things so badly and they just cannot get them. And how do we deal with that? How do we find the same peace that Hannah found? Who before she finishes praying, she leaves uh, the tabernacle and, and her prayer has not been answered. 
But scripture tells us that when she left that day, her face was no longer sad. How do we get that peace even when we don't get what we want? To answer that, we've got to look at the third thing, Hannah's song. So Hannah goes home. She gets pregnant. She has a son, names him Samuel. And she returns after he's been weaned and gives him over to Eli the priest so that Samuel can serve God in the temple. And as she hands him over, the text says that she prayed a prayer. But really, she, she, what she did was she sang a song. And here we see this intricate relationship between prayer and song. And so this is a song of praise to God as she's giving her son away. And it's in this praise that she discerns a pattern of how God works and the person through whom God is going to work. A pattern and a person. And the pattern that we see in this prayer of how God works, it's not hard to see. How does God work? It says, he breaks the bows of the strong, but gives the feeble strength. He makes the full hungry and the hungry full. He humbles the exalted and exalts the humble. He lifts up the poor and downtrodden. The pattern is clear. God works through weakness and not strength. God works through poverty and not wealth. God works through the powerless and not the powerful. God works through the outsider, not the insider. God always chooses the overlooked, the unlikely. And so if God wants to do something great, he's going to start with the barren, excluded woman. Sarah, Rachel, Samson's mother, Mary. Right? That's the pattern of how God works. But what about the person through whom God will do this great work of reversing the world, turning everything upside down. We look at verse 10, and and it says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. And and I just want to draw attention. There's that word thunder here. God thundering against his enemies. That's the same storm that Hannah felt inside of her when she was irritated. But it goes on to say that the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So the person through whom God is going to work is his anointed king. And when Hannah sang this song, that person did not exist. There was, you know, we saw everything was a mess. There was no king. Everyone was doing whatever they wanted. That person didn't exist. And her son Samuel would be the one to go on and anoint that king, David. But the horizons of this song, they're way beyond David. The Hebrew word for anointed is Mashiach where we get Messiah, where we get Christ, which is Jesus' title, not his last name. And so a thousand years after she sang this song, another poor, excluded woman would find herself in a situation like Hannah. And she heard from an angel who her child would be. She too sang a song, a much more famous song from Luke called The Magnificat. And it was a song based on Hannah's song. And she sang it with these words, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. Same pattern. Except this time Mary herself would bear the person whom Hannah's song foretold. Right? That's the pattern of how God works. Samuel, Isaac, Samson, all born to barren women by the power of God. But great David's greater son, Jesus, born to a virgin by the power of God person who would turn the world upside down 
The person whose weakness is our strength, whose poverty brings us riches, whose death gives us life, whose rejection means our acceptance. Peace comes from knowing the pattern of how God works. But most crucially, it comes from knowing the person, Jesus, through whom God works. All right, lastly, just two things that we can learn from Hannah's song. A couple big takeaways from this. One is that culture wants to offer us false identity and false hope. It wants us to value what it values and place our hopes in what it can offer. And so if we want to know what our culture wants us to want, well, you know, watch the ads. Look at what people want to sell us. And, and even more than that, look at how they want to sell it to us. And so culture wants us to want what it wants more than God. And so how do we fight that? Be like Hannah and put all our desires on the altar. Give them to God, saying, God, I want you more than I want what this world can offer me. And if I get what I want, if I get what my heart desires, I'm going to turn around and give it back to you to use. And the second thing we can learn, and this is a hard lesson, is that our suffering is never meaningless. But in our lifetimes, we might not get to figure out what the meaning of it is. So Hannah suffered. She really suffered. She endured year after year of torment. Her pain was real. But without that suffering, would she have done what she did? Would she have prayed the prayer that she prayed? Would she have sang the song that she sung? And Hannah, when she was doing this, she did not know that she was going to end up as this great heroine in the Bible. She didn't know that 3,000 years later, some guy in Minneapolis would be up here telling her story. She did not know the role that she would play in the redemption of the world. She didn't know that, and we don't know what role our lives and our suffering might play either. We have no idea. But in the midst of suffering, the most important thing we can do is be faithful and trust in God's even greater faithfulness because we don't know how things are going to turn out. We don't know how God will redeem our suffering. We, we, we don't know if we'll ever get to see it. But we know that God will because in Jesus Christ we see that God redeems suffering and we're promised that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to God's purpose. So all things work together for God's good. We just don't always get to see it. But because of grace, we believe it. So David's story starts with Hannah because like every great story, it starts with grace. Grace turns tears to joy. Grace lays every desire down on the altar. Grace is the pattern of how God works and grace is embodied in the very person of Jesus Christ. Grace teaches us how to live, how to live in the face of disappointment and how to persevere and hope in the midst of suffering. Grace gives us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.